Welcome to today's podcast, Honest Discussions on Reference-Based Price. This program is brought to you by the Healthcare Administrators Association, HCAA. For over 40 years, HCAA has supported third-party administrators and self-insured employer industry through educational opportunities from leading industry experts. For information on joining HCAA, please visit our website, www.hcaa.org. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar, and I'm on a mission to bring value to the healthcare industry through improved transparency. And my goal from this podcast is to give you one aha moment that you can implement in your business, whether you're a TPA, broker, or an employer. In my day job, I run a company called Zaki Point Health that helps self-insured employers and their employees find meaning from their healthcare data. Please like or share this podcast on your favorite podcasting tool so we can bring together a community of like-minded professionals. Before we begin today, I would like to bring you a word from our sponsor, MedWatch. MedWatch, one of the most trusted and respected population health management and medical cost containment companies in the industry. It was founded in 1988 within the reinsurance industry to provide effective solutions combined with meaningful and informative reporting. URAC accredited utilization, case and disease management programs are administered with a commitment to partnership and quality, demonstrated daily by a dedicated staff of clinicians, technicians, account executives, customer service, sales and support. Today, we have Steve Rasnick, a veteran of the TPA industry, having started, grown, and sold multiple TPA businesses to talk about reference-based price. On this podcast, you're going to learn a few things. Where does reference-based price work and where does it not work? What is the right type of employer where RBP can have a huge impact? What happens to employee relationships or provider relationships? And many, many more things. Let's just dig into it and enjoy. Good morning, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited to have you on our podcast, really because, Steve, you've spent a lot of time in the TPA industry. You have started TPA businesses, grown them, sold them. But more importantly, you've spent a lot of time at HCA helping, guiding the industry, providing your insights. So I'm super excited to talk to you our topic will be reference-based price, the do's and the not, not to do's and some real good insights. Steve, I'd love to let you introduce yourself and the journey you've gone through in the TPA industry. Well, that'll take the 45 minutes because I'm old. <laughs> but it's a pleasure to, to meet with you this morning. I've been in the business now over 40 years from starting my own TPA uh, and selling that TPA to a major carrier and running and then building their national organization, starting another TPA, which is the American way. You, you, mm -hmm. you start it, you sell it, and then you start it all over again. And we now are a part of uh, 90 degree benefits. We're a significant uh, TPA organization that we're building. We have 15 TPAs and almost 600,000 members that are involved. My TPA is located in, in Naples, Florida. 
but we have our claims operation and customer service up in the uh, Chicagoland area because when you live in paradise, you find you don't find a lot of people that want to work. So we we've done that, but our sales and marketing operations are down here. My philosophy uh, in uh, my career has been when somebody asks why, I ask why not, and that's really how we got into a. Uh, uh, RBP almost 12 years ago, we sold our first RBP case in Florida, didn't know what we were doing, had no patient advocate, didn't even think of a patient advocate. A client is still with us 12 years later. They have had a total of 18% in rate increases since in the 12 years. So they averaged about a percent and a half. It was a level funded plan because we helped create an invent level funding 20 years ago. And the client is extremely happy. So we know that it works. We know that it works a lot better now that we've learned how to do it and avoid some of the problems that, that we've had. So- uh, And to put this into context, so one and a half percent rate increase, what has the market been like in Florida for that employer? Well, you're going to see if you have a good case, you'll end up having trends. So you'll have eight, an eight to 10% increase without any change in benefits. So it's far better than trend. Remember in a level funded program, each year, each of those 12 years, we return to them the amount that was left in their claims account that they didn't spend 11 of the 12 years they received a significant refund. So not only did they have very limited rate increases, but their net spend was significantly below their maximum cost. Uh, and it was attributable to RBP. So that's maybe for our listeners uh, who don't know RBP. Just give a quick synopsis summary. What is RBP? What does it really mean uh, okay. for an employer and a TPA? There are a lot of different ideas and different models that are out there, but I'll try to simplify it. Historically, we've looked at the only alternative we've had is a PPO alternative. And in that PPO alternative, I would generally, oh, let me ask you a question, Ramesh. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is a better PPO discount, 50% or 35%? Well, always, what was the asking price in the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> I can give a lot of discounts, uh, but that seems to be the industry norm. Well, let me ask it a slightly different way. Uh, what's a better discount? A 50% discount at a hospital that has a charge master of 1,200% of Medicare or a 35% discount at a hospital that has a charge master of 450%. Yeah, so clearly the second one here. Absolutely, absolutely. Yet PPOs, so I would submit to you that PPO discounts oftentimes are fallacious discounts that you have to ask other questions. And we started asking those questions 13 or 14 years ago and looking for better alternatives. And we did a joint venture with a stop loss partner uh, and we came down with RBP. RBP uses a reference-based 
alternative to a traditional PPO. And the most frequently utilized reference-based alternative was Medicare. It's the most widely known schedule that's out there. So we developed a reimbursement arrangement that was predicated on 100% of Medicare plus a surcharge. And that plus varied by location and by relationships with Mm -hmm. hospitals with whom we may have done a a safe harbor agreement, but it averaged 150 to 200% of Medicare. So we were reimbursing hospitals and providers anywhere from 50 to 100% more than they routinely accepted with Medicare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So basically 150 to 200% while the real PPO rates might be 400 to 1200 time percent. Um, Correct. Correct. The huge, the huge Correct. And, so, and that in 12 years and 71% of our business being RBP, we've analyzed the real discount off of bill charges that that 150 to 200% of Medicare yields. And it varies by group and by mix of charges, but it's anywhere from 71 to 75% off of billed expenses. So it's a really significant discount off of billed expenses. So this is off billed expenses, yes. not whatever the charge master, 70 to 75% of what typically is being billed Correct. by hospitals right now. So we're, at, we're paying anywhere between, we're reimbursing anywhere between 25 and 30% of, of what is, is billed. Most hospitals, if they're honest, will tell you that they make money Mm. at that. When you consider the fact that we oftentimes draft safe harbor plans with it and waive deductibles and co-insurance, we take a hospital oftentimes out of the collection business. And it's pretty easy to calculate what they write off every year from high deductible plans. And in most instances, they end up saving money. Getting them to do that analysis is the challenge. Got it. So let's maybe we'll come back to the the challenges. Where does this actually work, reference-based price? Because I know there's a lot of excitement in the industry. TPA have been uh, deploying this. Certain employers use it. Certain employers don't use it. Some are afraid. Where does it really work and where does it not work? It's difficult to identify specific areas. It's easier to identify specific providers in an area. For example, in South Wisconsin, Southern Wisconsin, we have a number of clients that do very, very well. However, some of those clients use a very large 800-pound gorilla provider in the area, and they will not at all entertain an RBP alternative. So we know that if your people are going to see that provider, we know you're gonna have some noise. So one of the questions that we ask in the very beginning of of a relationship or before even considering it, is if you can provide us a list of the providers, the top 50 providers that your people see we have a pretty good idea based on our business, whether or not there are any real obstacles in that given area. And that will be the basis that we'll make a recommendation. Got it. So it's more 
localized and data driven in terms of where the population is going today. Absolutely, absolutely. Now there are some very, very large hospital chains that will not entertain it, but most of the noise, quite frankly, doesn't come from the hospitals. It comes from providers who are looking for a logo on an ID card and they don't see a logo, they see RBP or whatever we call it. We happen to call ours PPOX, like a train signal where you see a, a train crossing and then they have an X through it. Well, we have PPO with an X through it. If they don't recognize that, sometimes they won't accept you as a patient. And so in those instances, we found that a bifurcated RBP arrangement might work better where you combine for providers a PPO, mm-hmm. carve-out arrangement, and for the hospitals, you maintain your RBP at 150 to 200% or more for the hospitals. So if I'm understanding then, it's the PCPs who are calling and that's where the challenges are and you're addressing it by having a PPO arrangement for those PCPs whether it's some specialists or some lower cost kind of items and then for all the surgeries or hospitalization you've got this RBP arrangement. Yes correct and if you take a look at the mix of charges you'll see the frequency is on the provider the doctor side. Mm -hmm. Obviously People, thankfully, don't go to the hospital all the time. But the dollars that are involved are weighted much more heavily on the hospital side. When you go to the hospital as an inpatient, you're going to see a pretty significant bill. That's where the biggest opportunity for savings are. Got it. So that makes sense on the where it works. Any employer, any kind of demographic of the types of employers where this makes sense? Uh, yes. Type on the lo- location. Based on our experience, I would suggest to you that there has to be an alignment in thought between the CFO and the HR people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CFO is going to take a look at the dollars that are involved in the savings if they change the model to an RBP model. But the noise, and there will always be noise, in spite of what anybody else may say, I can tell you there has not been a case that we have written that hasn't involved some noise. That noise has to be handled usually at the HR level. Mm -hmm. And a company that doesn't have the HR capital to handle the predictable noise, they're gonna be very frustrated and they're not gonna do a very good job at it. So I think the education and training of the HR staff is critical. I think the tools that we make available to them are critical in handling the noise. And, you know, it it will be easy to generate a a savings. We'll always, almost always realize a savings of anywhere between 20 and 30 to 35% on both fixed costs and, and fixed costs, I'm talking about spec premiums and your aggregate attachment point. So we'll produce the savings, but you've got to have the ability to 
handle the predictable noise and avoid World War III. The worst thing for an employer is to have all of their employees unhappy. And once you lose the goodwill of your employees, uh, you might not as well offer a plan. So uh, there is noise and HR people have to be prepared for it. So it's kind of like a, a size of the employer factor. So if the HR team is more than one person so they can handle this, is there like some guidance on what size employer you would say? The first case that we wrote was a 60 life automobile employers and it worked very well with no support from us uh, because we didn't know what we were doing 12 years ago. Today, we do know what we're doing and we provide a level of support, but every employer is, is different and it's irrespective of the size. It mm -hmm. has to do with how much your HR person has to do. Uh, do you have an HR generalist who handles payroll and handles all of the HR activities and handles your ACA filings and all of that versus a company that may have two or three people in that area. And so the larger the employer, you would expect the more human capital that they'd have available, but it's not always a guarantee. So size, in this instance, size doesn't matter. Hmm. As long as they have that capacity to handle that. That's Some correct. As long as they have the expectation that we're going into this and it's new, it's innovative and creative for everybody, all the parties in interest, and as long as they recognize that there will be some challenges mm. for them that they're going to have to deal with. So in some ways, you've kind of made the case that this noise is worth it if they are open to innovation, trying things out, they are able to handle their employees' concerns if they do come up because the savings are there. Would you like to add anything else to this question about is this worth it or not? I would add to it that there are lots of different ways of getting the savings and generating a similar savings. So an RBP model has some noise associated with it, but the good thing about RBP is you don't have to change the underlying plan design. You don't have to change increased deductibles, increased co-pays, increase out-of-pocket to the ACA mm -hmm. limits in order to reduce your costs which is the normal approach in a non-RBP environment. We can generate the same savings without taking anything away from Bubba, but with mm. a little bit of a challenge. So it's important to educate the employees and educate the agents and educate the employer. Now we developed some educational films that, that work mm -hmm. very, very well in doing it. The films mean that no matter who's presenting it, it's presented the same way each time. Whereas if you or I were out there presenting, it may be slightly different, even though it's the same message. So this educational content is key. I guess the big question that then comes to my mind is, why aren't we seeing RBP just exploding out there? Or why aren't we seeing employers saying, great, I wanna work with the TPA, I don't want to work Buka carriers anymore, and I want to put RBP. Any kind of reasons why this is not happening? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of reasons that it's exploding in the, the industry. First of all, people are talking about it. 
agents are beginning to gain an understanding of it and they're beginning to talk about it. And the savings are hard to ignore. When you have a PPO quote lined up right next to a RBP quote, there may be a 25 to 35% or even more sometimes difference in maximum cost. So if your only focus is on the savings, RBP will be a no-brainer all the time, okay? Mm -hmm. But and that usually is a decision that is oftentimes made by an uninformed or underinformed agent or client. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather spend the time to educate them on the difference, make an assessment as to whether or not they could handle the noise, make an assessment as to which providers their employees are generally going to go to and make an assessment as to whether or not we have or our patient advocate has had success with those providers in the past and then make an informed recommendation. The attractiveness of, as I said, the attractiveness of RBP is you don't have to take anything away from the participant in terms of reducing benefits. I can keep them with the PPO and shop for a better PPO deal every year. But most of the uh, agents and clients out there, if they want to reduce costs, are willing to take something away from the participant. And I think the attractiveness of RVP is because you don't have to reduce benefits. Yeah. So let's take this thinking further off this educating the broker community who are uninformed, where do you want this to go? Let's say two years out, what could be done more to educate this broker community? Well, I think the national organizations like HCAA mm -hmm. have to come up with educational programs to inform the people who are selling RVP, the agents, and give them a 360 degree perspective. It's not only a savings, that's the easy part, but there are other moving parts that will cause problems if you don't address them. So I think that's extremely important. I think there's an obligation too, at the level of NAHU, National Association of Health Underwriters, they developed a self-funding curriculum a number of years ago. I'd like to see them develop in addition to that self-funding and RBP portion of it or curriculum because they represent a lot of agents. The fact of the matter is, is that a well-informed agent is going to make a well-informed sale, will we'll have a well-informed client and with reasonable expectations, and it will work much, much better if we do that. So education by HCAA and, and NAHU, and uh, perhaps local seminars, more local seminars by mm -hmm. local TPAs to their captive agents. We all, in Naples, we have perhaps 30 or 40 agents that we deal with on a regular basis and produce most of our business. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that they're fully educated and RVP. Okay. So that's a couple of messages out to our listeners. One is to now we Let's create a video. Let's create the educational material. And then to all the TPAs, host more seminars, events, and uh, other yes. things to really get this going. 
this is good. I think the the biggest other piece of the puzzle is the employee, the member, the disruption they might experience. What are some of the challenges there for members and member experience? The lack of education, the lack of dependent and spousal education, because oftentimes we build a, a portal for the employee and that never gets brought home. Hmm. It's not only RBP, it's a lot of different things that we see out there. So we have uninformed spouses that don't understand RBP that's out there. We have to prepare them better for the things that might arise. What happens when you go to a physician for your first visit, you present your ID card and the physician's Hmm. office, the clerk says, I'm sorry, we don't have a contract with this entity, so you'll have to pay cash for it. Educating the participant that before they have that visit, they should reach out to their patient advocate Mm -hmm. to identify whether or not that provider is going to accept the card or not. And if it's a provider that the patient advocate has dealt with in the past, they can reach out to them and just say, it's the same thing you've accepted in the past for them. Or in the event that it's a provider that's simply not going to accept it, the patient advocate can steer to another provider and the uh, patient can make an informed decision. The fact of the matter is, uh, you know, I talk a lot about the noise, but the noise occurs on roughly 2% of all the claims. So it's not a large percentage of the claims, but we have found over 12 years that better than 98% of the time, the patient gets the right treatment that they want from the right physician who's charging the right amount and doing the right thing. So it's a very small percentage in the greater scheme of things, but oftentimes noise is noise. And when you have to go as a patient, when you have to have a heart exam and you heard that the best heart physician in town is Dr. Smith and Dr. Smith won't accept it, that's really frustrating. And that's where patient advocacy really is important. And so maybe put some numbers around this or give us a sense, this patient advocacy, is this something what the RBP service provider should do and always does? Do you see a role of TPA there? Do you see, you know, you mentioned 2% of the time calls coming in from the patients. What's been the experience now versus in the past? Maybe help me understand this challenge. There are really a couple of different models uh, to patient advocacy. Some of our TPAs have have kept that in-house. It's a part of their uh, case management where there's a normal interaction. That's a a good model, and it oftentimes works very, very well in a specific region. On a more national basis, I think it's probably as good, if not a better idea, to partner with a national organization who has a national reach. And that's the model that we've chosen. Historically, the 2% number has never varied significantly. And knock on wood, we are not aware of any litigation 
any one of our clients. And that's the worst thing that can happen. Even if you have legal protection involved and an attorney gets involved, that's not a pleasant experience that you want your employees to, to have to suffer through. We've never had, to my knowledge, that situation. We've never had any litigation. And the interesting thing is 10 years ago when we started collecting, actually uh, the data was eight or nine years ago. We weren't that smart 12 years ago. We started looking at what percentage of all the claims involved some degree of noise. It was 2% back then, just like it is right now. It's a relatively small percentage, but the noise in this instance can really just, we've lost cases over noise that we didn't handle well. Mm -hmm. I know of many TPAs that have lost cases. I know of many TPAs that have saved cases because they expect the noise to occur and they develop a strategy to mitigate it. Mm. So it's more so, like being knowledgeable and proactive, setting the expectations right for the HR team employees as well. Yes. Yes, and yes, precisely. And you said uh, the question early on was, is uh, the savings worth the noise? Mm. Okay, and the answer is, in my opinion, clearly. I, I am not a proponent of, of the PPO and I believe there are uh, fallacious discounts that are out there. I believe that Medicare is a credible and believable reference base to work off of. Mm -hmm. And the challenge really is picking a level of upcharge, if you would, uh, above 100% of Medicare that meets the needs of the hospital or the providers, and at the same time meets the needs of an employer. And I don't think those goals are mutually exclusive. And our experience has been 150 to 200%, but we have signed direct contracts that are 220 to 250 or 60% because it was a lot better than 2000% mm. uh, above, above Medicare. So you introduced another really important trend, direct contracts. So RBP versus these direct contracts, where do you see the market going two years out, three years out, Steve? It will grow, in my opinion. RBP will continue to grow as a credible alternative to PPOs. It will never, in my opinion, be a 100% solution because not every employer is a suitable candidate uh, for RBP. Not every agent is a suitable agent to sell RBP because it, it's a different type of sale. But it will continue to grow because one is it saves money. And two, if it's done properly, we can box the noise that's out there, develop and have developed and continue to develop statistically based solutions where we should be able to handle, if not all, the vast majority of any noise uh, that's out there. And again, I don't think I don't think the hospitals and providers are the bad guys in, in this at all. I just think that they want to make money, 
-hmm. Even the not-for-profits have to make money to do it. Our employers have, have a desire to offer affordable benefits. And again, those goals are not mutually exclusive. And I think RBP is a great way to achieve those uh, goals. So if you had to put some numbers, do you think RBP will be three to five times more in two years time? Direct contracting will be another? Well, that raises, uh, let me answer the question uh, two ways if I can. First off, the RBP isn't the end game, okay? Hmm. The end game, I believe, is in developing a partnership with the providers and signing a direct contract, what I would call a safe harbor contract, mm -hmm. where there is a guarantee of no balance bill in return for a negotiated percentage of Medicare. In our programs, our safe harbor programs, say to an employee, here are your benefits. If you go to a safe harbor provider, we're going to waive deductibles, we'll waive co-insurance, we may even mm -hmm. will waive co-pays, mm -hmm. either all or some of the above. But you are not obligated to go to a safe harbor provider. You still retain a choice, and that choice is to go to anybody that you want to. But we want you to know that if you go outside of the safe harbor arrangement, you're going to have deductibles and co-insurance, the same ones, not punitive. And you may be subject to a balanced bill. So now you have a, a choice. I think those programs will continue to grow as we partner with hospitals and providers that are really interested themselves in getting out of these PPO contracts. They don't like them either. Secondly, I think the uh, legislation that has been proposed regarding transparency yes. is going to create a need to publish all this information. And if I look at it practically, it's going to be a lot easier to publish a reference-based schedule as a percentage of Medicare than it will be to publish a schedule for a hospital, for example, as to what their charges are when they have five different PPO contracts or 10 different PPO contracts. So I think circumstances legislatively will will cause expansion and also logic will create expansion of, of RBP because it's just simply a better approach to reducing costs without taking anything away from the participant. Yep. Well, very some, some really important thoughts, direct contracts, RBP, and the whole price transparency, how that can change the game you know, making it all, all kind of easily available to members and employers, the kind of pricing and CMS rates. Very exciting stuff in front of us. And I think we're up on our time and I know this has been very, very helpful. And I believe there's a lot more questions that have probably come out of this, maybe for future discussions as well. But I wanted to just thank you very much for, for your insights. Well, Ramesh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and for those that have questions, uh, once it's published, they know how to reach me, and I'll be happy to, to help them learn how to do it the right way. So tell us a couple of ways. Should they reach out to you on LinkedIn, email? I'm on LinkedIn. It's easy on LinkedIn or at steve.rasnick at 90degreebenefits.com.
given that long email address, I'm on LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Steve. Really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. You have a great day now. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to thank MedWatch, our sponsor for this show. Please join us again for another podcast in the series brought to you by HCAA's Voices of Self-Funding. Please like and share so we can build a community of like-minded people and tell us about topics that we should bring to you next. Please watch your email for updates on upcoming guests. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar of Saki Point Health.